Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General podcast. I am Al, and joining me today is my guest, Josh Hadley. How are you doing today, Josh? I've had better days, but I'm ready to talk some Castlevania and help the Belmont, Bel- Belmont? Belmont. Belmont clan <laughs> keep Dracula. You know what? I-, I just thought of something. What's that? Dracula has come back from the grave in this franchise probably more than than any other character in history. Yeah, because that's I know that originally in the original continuity, he was supposed to come back every like hundred years. But if you look at the dating of the games, they don't really follow that rule very closely. But eh, oh well, it's a video game, so yeah, it's it is interesting. I mean, I know that the reason that they say he comes back is you know he answers the call of man. So when evil grows, then that's when Dracula is going to come back. So before we dive too deeply into talking about the Castlevania music I used to introduce the show today were some various uh, arrangements of Vampire Killer, which has become one of the most famous uh, music tracks associated with the Castlevania series. The first part was, of course, from the original Castlevania, followed by version from Castlevania III Dracula's Curse, though in that particular game they call it Deja Vu. After that, there's the version from Super Castlevania IV, and then finally, the version of Vampire Killer from Castlevania Judgment. I believe they also redo, they have a new version of the track in Symphony of the Night as well. I seem to remember it in that that too. Uh, not Vampire Killer. They use it a little bit in the ending credits. To, I guess there's a couple different versions of the ending credits for Symphony of the Night. The original, I think, uses a song, Wind Beneath My Wings. I am, no, I am the wind. I am the wind, Which is just so ridiculously inappropriate for everything you've just gone through. And then this, and then all of a sudden this flute starts and this touching song about friendship. And you're like, what the hell is that? I just killed my father. What the heck does that have to do? But the, in the the version I have, which is for the Xbox 360, uh, they have a new track they made called Adoration of Clan, where they use a little bit of Vampire Killer in it, and then they also use part of uh, Bloody Tears. The, the only reason I'm saying that, I've got the original PlayStation version okay. of Symphony of the Night, is I've, I also have the soundtrack, and it's got a track called Vampire Killer, which hmm. pretty much is the theme. Maybe that's just on the soundtrack and didn't make it into the game. I don't. It's been a while since hmm. I've played it, so that I might be wrong. Yeah, that's probably it because they've got the option after you've beaten the game when you go to the librarian, you can look through the music tracks and they don't have the, uh, they don't have Vampire Killer listed in there. So yeah, it was probably just a bonus for the CD, but again, it is certainly possible they may have planning on put, oh wait, wait, I know where it came from, I think. Um, The Sega Saturn version, I believe. It actually had a couple extra stages, and I think one of them may have used Vampire Killer for the stage music, so it's possible that's where that one came from. Okay. I also want to point out, you mentioned uh, that you can go to the librarian. You can also, and I don't know how many other PlayStation games did this, you can pop the Symphony of the Night game into a CD player and listen to the songs. Oh, that's cool. Because, again, I know we're going to be talking about Symphony of the Night later, but uh, one of the things that I've always loved about Castlevania, at least the games I've played, is 
some of the best video game soundtracks that I've ever heard. Um, probably the only ones that really match it for me anyway. Final Fantasy and Mega Man are, you take those three, Final Fantasy, Mega Man, and Castlevania, as far as just a series go, those have some of my favorite video game music. Well, if you're talking the classic era, I'm, I don't know if I'll debate you on that, but like Halo 4, when, when you start getting to the final stage, it feels like a Michael Bay movie with the music as it comes in. That's cool. I've never played Halo, so that's probably why I'm not familiar with the music for Halo. Well, and, and sometimes it's not just symphonic music. Like uh, the Saints Row games, you know, oh, yeah. you, you can you can listen to various songs throughout the game, but through the when you get to the final boss, it's a, a track you can't control. In the third game, when you're making your decision of, of whether you're going to save Burt Reynolds or kill the bad guy. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Burt Reynolds plays himself as actor Burt Reynolds as the mayor of Steelport. I'm cool. not joking. <laughs> it, it plays um, Hero by Laura Branigan, which is just so pitch perfect. And then in the fourth game, after an alien destroys the Earth and you're in a set of – you're in a um, robotic power armor fighting a giant space monster, the touch from Transformers the movie plays. Oh, and it's so pitch perfect that, that awesome. you just burst out laughing. That is awesome. I love the song, The Touch. Um, I, actually, Saints Roy, it's one of those so series it, that – So it might not be symphonic music, but those rock songs fit perfect. I, I have been meaning to – check out the Saints Row series someday, but I just have never haven't got around to it because I hear it's I think they it doesn't really take itself very seriously considering the fact that it's a game about, you know, gangsters and gang wars and killing people. It okay, the, the first game is a straight up Grand Theft Auto ripoff. The mm -hmm. second game is pretty much the same thing but starts to bring humor in. The third game they said, let's smoke a whole bunch of crack and then write this thing. The third game is nuts. And then the fourth game said, you thought that was nuts? Uh-uh. Now we're nuts. And then the newest expansion, Get Out of Hell, says, you know what? We're still nuts. So I would say just start with Saints Row 3 because the other two are just Grand Theft Auto knockoffs, really. Onto a video game series that I do know a bit about, and that is Castlevania. Now, before we begin, in one of my episodes not too long ago, I had my friend Dan from Radio Free Borderlands uh, play Castlevania for the NES, though we were actually playing on the Wii U, and I recorded some of his reactions to it. And needless to say, it's not one of his favorite games. And one of the things that we discussed, and also uh, even further back, my normal co-host, Steve, we did a two-part series called Changing Technology. And one of the things we discussed in that as well, video games, which of course have changed quite a lot since we were kids. In general, Josh, do you think that video games have gotten better or worse over the years? And this is just core gameplay, I mean, not including things like music and graphics, because obviously something for, you know, the Atari 2600 or the Commodore 64 isn't going to be anywhere near the PlayStation or Xbox or anything from, you know, even the 8-bit or 16-bit eras. I, I, I think it ebbs and flows because, like, obviously the Atari era was all about just straight-up scoring points. I mean, it was rare to have a game like Raiders of the Lost Ark when where you actually had a story. Oh, yeah. But then the 8-bit then the era came in and you started to have stories and the score didn't necessarily matter as much. But those games were 
brutally difficult. Yep. And then as you got into the CD-based technology and the polygons and all that, it actually kind of nerfed itself a little bit. Because these people that are great Call of Duty players and Gears of War, I I guarantee they're not going to be able to beat Castlevania. (laughs) I've never beat Castlevania. I've beat most of the sequels. I have never beat the first game without cheating. Yeah, I I have never beat that one without cheating. Castlevania is one of the most punishingly difficult games you will ever encounter. Yeah, and if uh, the video that Dan and I recorded, the thing he always complained about is those Medusa heads that, of course, are strategically placed to knock you into pits, which is, of course, the nature of the, uh, you know, a lot of platforming games in general. And, you know, when you talk about difficulty, there's a term called NES hard. You know, a lot of these games that we played as kids for the Nintendo, and I'm not sure about the Sega Master System. I never really played any of those games, so I'm not sure how hard they were compared to the, the Nintendo. The Sega Master System, at least when it started out, because Nintendo had what later was deemed to be an illegal monopoly by saying that if you made a game for Nintendo, you can't make it for a competitor. And Sega, the company, was making arcade games. A lot of early Sega Sega Master System titles were just simply arcade ports. They had some original stuff like the Fantasy Star series and mm-hmm. that, but most of their stuff were arcade ports. So yeah, now, you don't know how difficult arcade games are. Imagine how difficult the 8-bit version was. Now I remember we actually talked about this in the episode uh, when arcade games come home, where you know you remember you mentioning that where you know usually the NES had more of the originals, whereas the the Sega Master System had the you know the arcade ports but uh, a lot of these games back then you know you didn't have save points every five feet like you do in some of the games now and i that's one of the criticisms i've heard of a lot of modern games is they do tend to well more or less hold your hand all the way through the darn game also a lot of these early games one of the things that did make them so difficult is the fact that they had limited continues now, in the case of the Castlevania games, you could continue as much as you want. But one game I remember from the NES era, are you familiar with a game called Journey to Silius? I'm familiar with it, but I don't think I've ever actually played it. It's actually a fun game. It had really good music for the time. Difficult, definitely an NES hard type game because you you only had three continues. You had three lives per continue, and there were no extra lives in the game. So you had to essentially beat the game with nine lives. So a lot of it was really just learning to memorize the patterns, which is, I think that was pretty common in a lot of these early games is getting to know the patterns. Oh my God, just try playing Street Fighter 2010. I have played that game. (laughs) That is one of the most, not only is it punishingly difficult, but I mean, Castlevania and some of the other games have, you know, time limits, but they're, generally forgiving with their time limits street fighter 2010 basically said we've given you just enough time to get through this level you can't i can't even count how many times you just get hung up on one guy and and then you'd go i can't do it i might as well just kill myself because i don't have enough time now yeah because i think i got to the second stage once on that game Because, yeah, for the reason you mentioned, it's difficult. There's all these monsters flying around. You have, you know, a time limit. And after you beat the guy that you're supposed to kill, then you still have to make your way to the exit. So, you know, if you beat him on 
the left side of the screen and the exits on the right side of the screen and you've got two seconds well guess what yeah you're screwed so yeah that's definitely one of those brutally difficult games but getting back to castlevania so what are some of the things that you like about the castlevania games that you've played or about well, just the series in general if uh I don't know if you've ever like watched playthrough videos of any of the games on like YouTube or any other uh, website. I liked the Castlevania games right from the get go. We got a Nintendo the first year, the first Christmas it was available here in America. Remember, it came out in Japan at the mm-hmm. Famicom the year prior, and we got not counting Super Mario Brothers, which obviously came with it. We got three games that Christmas: Top Gun, nineteen forty two. And I was, you know, it's a monster game. I made my parents get Castlevania. Mm -hmm. So I had this Christmas 87. I'm 40 this year. I still have not ever beaten the original Castlevania. I've been playing this game since I was 12, (laughs) and I still can't beat it. I'm 40 now. I talk about replay value. I, I, I'll pop it in every now and then because I still got my original cart of it and I'll pop it in every now and then and I get frustrated around I know they're hunchbacks but I call them monkeys because of the way they jump around. Yep. I just get so frustrated with all the monkeys yes. that I, I just, it's controller throwingly frustrating. Yep. And still, one of the thing, this is one of the things I, I think I like about these early Castlevania games even though, yeah, as you put it, they are controller throwing frustrating, they're still they still remain very fun games to play. One of the things that I personally liked about them is the music. Why do you think the series always retained its appeal for I believe it's been going for almost thirty years, and we were talking a little bit about this before we started recording. Uh, the number of Castlevania games that are out there. If you include like some of the spin-offs and more obscure games, there's about I think 40 some Castlevania games out there. And unfortunately of those 40, there's maybe 10 good ones. <laughs> yeah. Which I mean, is part of the problem. I think at this point it's a franchise title and that's it because nowadays they just sell the games based on it's Castlevania and they don't bother whether it's a good game. So to me, it's a franchise title at this point. The same as the Resident Evils or the Mario Brothers or anything. It's not about quality anymore. It's about keeping the franchise alive. Yeah, and I know you're not the first person to say that. I mean, I've read the occasional forum or internet posting where, yeah, there are people who think that Castlevania stopped being good in the you know early 2000s. And I'm sure there's some people that would even say that after Symphony of the Night. So... You know, that's, of course, all a matter of perspective. I, I will agree with you, though. Castlevania has had some highs and it's had some lows and it's had some real lows, which we'll talk about. The N64 titles. Yes. One of the reasons I think that Castlevania has retained its appeal for so long, you know, again, the, the, the music said just about every Castlevania game I've played has had really good music, but also it had an interesting cast of characters. It had this overarching story arc that runs through most of the games. Um, so and, and the, the problem with the overarching story, overarching story arc is they stopped caring about that after a while. And I mean, th- th- this thing has more of a convoluted continuity than 
any movie franchise than the Friday the 13th franchise or the Nightmare on Elm Streets or the Halloweens with constantly retcons. No, see, that game didn't count. And then the next game will come out. No, the game that said that that game didn't count, didn't count. But then also the game that it said didn't count, <laughs> didn't count. So this is the true sequel. And, I mean, this thing has a timeline that is just asinine. That's true. I mean, there are some areas where it's kind of like there's games that are hard to fit in or where there's, you know, some stuff contradicts others. The uh, one that comes to mind was Castlevania 4. They it tried to be a reboot as opposed to, you know, actually continuing the storyline. But we'll get to that in just a moment. But uh, the Castlevania games tend to fall into three different styles, at least for most of them. There's the classic style. These would be your side-scrolling platformers like the original Castlevania, Castlevania 3, uh, Super Castlevania. There's also the 3D style, which would be the the horrible N64 ones, uh, the more recent ones in the Lord of Shadows series. And then there's the the third term, which I think has probably gained the most popularity. Some people call them Metvania, other call them Castleroid. Now you've probably heard of this term, the style of play. Yeah, and I have to admit, I do like a lot of those because, like Symphony of the Night, I, I, uh, Circle of the Moon was the the Game Boy Advance one mm-hmm. that that used the same style and that wasn't too bad. And then there was that new one that they just put out online. Uh, the title's escaping me at the moment. Uh, I only played the Despair. De- the, the, that might be it. Just a, the timed one where you got to play with a partner. Yep. A Harmony of Despair. Okay, I, I've only played the demo of that, and I'd be fine with that if it wasn't, again, a time limit, including pauses. So even if someone comes to your door, the time limit continues to tick down when you're paused, and when you're paused, you continue to get attacked. I think, frankly, that's bullshit. Yeah, and that's... That's just cheap. And the fact that it's designed to be played with a partner online. Well, come on, you tell me in a year that server is still going to be up and running? Yeah, that's one. I played the demo as well, and that's one of the things that kind of turned me off about it. The same things you mentioned. Yeah, you pause it, you can still take damage. Um, so, again, you got to go to the bathroom, and it's it's too much focused on the online play. Now, if they had an offline play where you could you know, take your time, if you could pause the game without getting attacked, I might consider buying it, but... I probably def- would buy it because I love exp- I love exploring games like that. I don't want to be under this time limit where if I stop and goof around too long, I don't have enough time to beat the boss. Exactly, and uh, I, I, the demo it's kind of fun to play every now and then, but you know it hasn't convinced me to actually pull, to buy it yet. And again, we can certainly talk about that uh, later. But as far as the style I prefer, I haven't really played much of the 3D versions. I'd have to say I do like the Metvania style, but I, I still really like the classic style as well with the, the more linear levels. But I again, I do like the Metvania, and for those who may not be familiar with where the term came from, uh, Symphony of the Night is the first game that had this Metvania-type feel. Well, I don't know if you'd want to consider Simon's Quest. No, I, no, I would yeah. actually say, I mean, Simon's Quest kind of, but Rondo of Blood also, because that Symphony of the Night doesn't happen without Rondo of Blood, aka Dracula X. Yeah, because Symphony of the Night, um, the well, the term Metvania, it's a combination of Metroid and Castlevania, because one of the things that people noticed when they started playing Symphony of the Night is it had a style very similar to Metroid. 
and those games rely on a lot of exploration and backtracking. For example, uh, early and on... gearing up. Yep, and for example, early in the game, you know, you get to the Roy... Well, the, actually, even when you're in the uh, the entrance area, you, you'll, you get to, like, I think it's like the third room or so, and you'll see that there's a hole in the ceiling that you can't reach. So that tells you, okay, eventually later on in the game, I have to get a material or I have to get something that lets me get up to that area. And then, you know, you come across other areas where there are ledges that are too high for you to reach. Or, again, when you get to the, the alchemy lab, actually, no, it's, I'm sorry, it's in the Royal Chapel, there's a blue glowing door. In some ways, the, the style of play is kind of like survival horror. Have you played a lot of survival horror games or... In the early days, yeah, back back before they were good, I guess yeah. if you uh, if you could put it that way, yeah, before they were good, I did. Yeah, because the with the survival horror games, I know they focus a lot on the backtracking, and in a way, the Metvania style play does fit that because yeah, you're going to have to go back to backtrack, and I didn't mind it as much in Castlevania, but. For some reason, with the survival horrors, I think it does get a little carried away. It's like... Exactly. Oh, I have a rocket launcher. Why do I need a key for a damn wooden door? <laughs> exactly. Or it's like, you know, if there's like, say, a locked safe in the in the attic, where is the key? In the basement. What do you have to do to get to the basement? Well, there's a lock to the door in the basement. Well, where is the key that opens that door? It's in the woodshed in the backyard. Well, how do I get there? Well, there's a statue blocking my way of the door to get outside. So what do I have to do? I have to somehow find dynamite in order to blow that statue so I can go outside because for some reason I can't crash through a window. So I get outside in the back and there's a woodshed and guess what? The woodshed is locked. So where's the key for that? For some reason it's on the ceiling or not the ceiling. Yeah, it's on it's, the roof. <laughs> it, you know, yeah. The, the survival horrors are all about making you backtrack instead of actually making a story that works enough that you, I mean, you know, if you don't want to play it linearly, fine, you don't. But like, like the Resident Evil games, it, it or gets so frustrating because, and I understand why they did it because of limited technology. You can only have so many sets, so you need to keep finding a way to reuse them. Mm -hmm. I get that. It's that doesn't make it not irritating. Yeah, that's true. And, uh, the only Metvania-style game where I found the backtracking to be really kind of annoyance is Harmony of Dissonance, which, again, we'll talk about when we get to that era of the Castlevania games. Wait, let's start with the first one. I remember my first experience playing this. I was at a cousin's house, and he had the Nintendo, and I was spending the night there, and I remember we played Castlevania, but for some reason we could only get to... I forgot whether we... I, don't, I forgot if we actually got to death or not. I think we at least got to Frankenstein, but yeah, because he had that stupid Igor monkey that kept jumping around, I remember he always killed us, at least until I found out exactly how awesome the firebomb is against him. But I remember that... It, 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 it's ironic that in the Castlevania series, and I'm talking the, the 8-bit era, that what is arguably the most useless weapon through most of gameplay is the best weapon against a boss. Oh, yeah. I mean, in mo and it's the same way in Super Castlevania, I know Symphony of the Night as well, and uh, Dracula's Curse, yeah, the firebomb will decimate most bosses. Because but it's it almost totally useless throughout the rest of the level. 
yeah, it's it's one of those weapons that does take a lot. It does take a little practice to use, and because like let's say you're in an area where there's a lot of Medusa heads, and for those who maybe haven't seen the video I posted with Dan, or just haven't played or seen the Castlevania games, the Medusa heads they fly across the screen in an S, you know, an S wave pattern, uh, and they're always strategically placed in areas where they're going to knock you into a pit. So usually that's where it's helpful to have weapons like the boomerang or the stopwatch. Again, the stopwatch, of course, will buy you some time. Or you, you can use like the boomerang or the dagger to uh, to. It's kill actually them. not a boomerang. I always thought the same thing. Oh, it's yes. a cro- holy cross. That is true, which, of course, they... You know, that's what's weird is because back then, Nintendo, of course, had very strict policies when it came to religious imagery in video games. But yet in... Castlevania, you know, you pick up a cross and it destroys enemies on the screen. And as you said in the original version, which I think was called Vampire Killer, um, the the weapon that we called the boomerang was actually a cross. It's just the graphic was actually turned so that it it did look like a cross. Um, and then Castlevania Two, you go to churches to uh, restore your life. And Castlevania Three starts with Trevor Belmont kneeling in prayer in front of a big cross. (laughs) The game that really, it made an impression on me, and I think the thing that I liked best about it, you know, again, the music and the graphics were actually really good for its time in that that, uh, era of the NES's history. Well, and then also there was the arcade version, Vampire Killer, with much bigger sprites. It's essentially the same game, but it's so much more awkward to play. Oh, Haunted Castle. Haunted Castle, sorry. Yeah, it's, okay. it's so much more awkward to play with these giant sprites. So it actually kind of worked better being scaled down to what the NES could handle, really. Yeah, and the other problem, well, let's just talk about Haunted Castle since we're on it there. It's I think the other big problem with it is just the gameplay on it is just so slow compared to the other and... I mean, granted, Castlevania, most of the Castlevania games aren't exactly fast-paced games. But, you know, ugh, it's like if Castlevania moves at the speed of a turtle, Haunted Castle moves at the speed of a turtle with, a, with one leg. It's, it's just painfully slow. Of course, after Castlevania and Vampire Killer with, I believe it's very, it's fairly similar to Castlevania in its design, but... There's shopkeepers that you find here and there, and I think there's some different bosses and some different stage designs. I've never actually played Vampire Killer. Have you? I think that's a Japanese-only game, I believe. Next, after Castlevania, we got Simon's Quest, Castlevania 2, which I kind of liked this one when it first came out because I've never been much for games with time limits. I don't like feeling rushed, but it introduced RPG elements. You know, Simon could level up, and he could... He had to find weapons, and he could actually keep an inventory of weapons. What were some of your impressions of Castlevania II? I played this one when it first came out, and I enjoyed it at the time. Of course, without Nintendo Power, nobody was going to realize yeah. that you had to get like that blue crystal and kneel at the mountain to have a tornado pick you up to get you to the final castle, because there's nothing in the game. There's little hints, but no, nothing tells you that you're supposed to do that. That is bad game design. 
the biggest problem was not that the, the shift to the nighttime. I kind of liked that, that once night fell, you weren't on a clock like a time period or like a time limit, but every so many minutes it would be daytime and then it would be nighttime. And at nighttime, all the monsters would have double hit points yep. and you couldn't go into a town. I kind of liked that. You had to, you know, okay, it's about to turn night. I need to get into this town now. But that whole da 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 Every time it turned from day to night, the game literally stops for 25 seconds while it types out that it's changing yep. from day to night. And well, you're like, oh my God, shut up. I know. it's That is one of the things that I know a lot of people hated, and it did get kind of annoying, but it did add that survival uh, horror type feel to it because, as you said, you know when you got you could when you got to a town at night you couldn't go in any of the buildings so you wanted to make sure that you got to a town so you could go to the church and heal up before night fell and the this was the first this one actually did have multiple endings uh based i think it was based on how long it took you to uh beat the game and how it also had such a, a regular amazing typo in it as you know when they were converting it from english to or from japanese to english yes <laughs> you now possesses and it, every time you get one of dracula's body parts you now possesses yep. whatever this is and it was the same typo over and over and like they had like two extra s's butted together you had the <laughs> r and possess it's like okay i get there's english but that's inexcusable it took a little getting used to it. And I think said thank goodness for Nintendo Power. My major complaint about that game was it was hard to navigate because you know you had this whole land to explore, but it was all just you know of course in a two dimensional surface. So you had to kind of uh, know where the towns were to get an idea of where you were in this world. But other than that, like I said, I did enjoy it, and it's one of those games that I do like going back to play every now and then. Well, the last of the NES era, or actually before we get to the last of the NES era, there were couples that did come out for Game Boy. There was Castlevania the Adventure and Castlevania II Belmont's Revenge. Have uh, you ever played either of those two? I owned the second one, Belmont's Revenge, at one point, but I honestly can't give you a single memory of actually ever playing it. I do remember owning it at one point, though. Because I played both of them, and the thing I didn't like about Castlevania The Adventure, you didn't have sub-weapons, and you... That's because the Game Boy couldn't handle that. Yeah, I mean, you didn't get the sub-weapons until the second one. <laughs> um, but with uh, Castlevania The Adventure, you got crystals that you used to power up your whip, because, of course, you start out with the leather whip, then... Uh, you got the chain whip, and then when you got your third power up, you're whipped through fireballs. However, when you got hit, your whip power went down a level. So if you had the whip with the fireballs and you get hit, then, well, guess what? Now you're back to just the chain whip. You get hit again, well, now you're back to, you know, just the plain old leather whip. So that those two were kind of lackluster. Belmont's Revenge was a little better because, again, you had at least two sub-weapons, the axe and the firebomb or the holy water or whatever you want to call it. And you also got to choose which stage that you wanted to do first. But then there's Castlevania III, Dracula's Curse. Uh, have you played this one? or 
I've, I've got I've got this one still I've, with a box X rental mm. unfortunately so the box got stickers all over it. Ah. This one I loved because I don't consider it cheating because it's built into the game. Once you get Alucard, you can just <laughs> breeze through so many levels and not even have to deal with any of the crap that's being thrown at you. Yeah, and I just have... turn into a bat, fly over it, and go to the next damn level. Yeah, and I'd have to say that this is my favorite of the 8-bit uh, early Game Boy era. Um, I really loved the music in this one. I think the graphics were some of the best graphics for the NES. But it was a fun game, and I like how you did have the three characters that you could, or three assistant characters you could get. Uh, of course, you can only have one at a time. Uh, you mentioned Alucard, who uh, I, I can't wait to introduce my friend Dan to Alucard in Castlevania 3. He is going to be so depressed because he's used to Symphony of the Night. But yeah, his ability to turn into a bat, he could fly, and that just made it so easy to take shortcuts. He um, also had a distance weapon. He could shoot. He was the only one of the characters that had a distance weapon that wasn't a sub weapon. Yeah, and uh, it was kind. Of, it was nice when you got the it fully powered up because then he shot three fireballs, which of course you would see him do in the later games. But that's beside the point. I have to say, my favorite of the three uh, companions, Grant Dynasty, because I you like stick you like sticking to walls, huh? Yeah, and because you could actually avoid some uh, really hairy situations with him. And I think that Dracula is actually easiest to beat with Grant because one of the things he can do is he can jump a little bit higher than the other characters, but you actually have the ability to control the trajectory of your jump, which, you know, of course, with Simon, Alucard, and Sypha, uh, Sypha's uh, a witch wizard. With them, if you miscalculate your jump, you're going to fall into a pit. But with Grant, it's like with Super Mario Brothers. You jump and you could move the controller to adjust where you were jumping. So that made it really easy to get through some of the areas that had uh, tricky jumping. That plus the fact that, you know, again, he had the ability to stick to walls. Only thing that really sucked about him is his dagger just was so pathetically short-ranged. And like Sypha, he took an extra point of damage when he got hit. So yeah, I, I, but they went back to the mechanics of the first game. Yes. And they, they they sure as hell didn't ramp the difficulty down, I'll tell you that. Oh, yeah. I And that's true. And uh, some of the areas, they can be easier or harder to get through depending on who you have with you. I've beaten the game with all three of the, of the companions. I've never beaten it with just Trevor, though. I, I, th I don't think you're supposed to, really. No, it is, it is possible. I have seen, because when you do meet one of the, when you meet up with your companions, you're given the option to not take them. Uh, and I have seen videos that do have the ending with just Trevor. But uh, one of the things I did like about that is the fact that there were the multiple paths you could take. So again, that helped increase the replayability of this game. So that's why another one of those reasons why I think it's one of my favorite games from this era in Castlevania. It's actually less frustrating than the original, and it's more got much more replay value than the, than Simon's Quest. And, and and then when you get to the 16-bit era, Super Castlevania, I don't know. I I think it it works as an all right remake of the first game, but in all honesty, the the giant sprites. I mean, yes, it was much cleaner looking, but mm -hmm. it. it 
It had the same problem that Haunted Castle did. You're too damn big. That part didn't bother me. Personally, I really liked Castlevania 4. Don't laugh at me when I say this, and I know I've said stuff like this before on my show, but when I first saw 16-bit graphics and 16-bit music, I thought to myself, there's no way they can ever make any graphics or music better than this. Boy, was I wrong. And, and, and then you, you, you probably dumped ass when you saw the, the Mode 7 levels, huh? Oh, yeah. Oh, and that's one of the things I did like about it is it, the stage design in that game is actually really good. You know, they do a lot of things. You had the Mode 7 levels. There were a lot of levels where they put you in really tense situations. I don't remember what level it is. Now, have you ever beaten that game? or? No, I I didn't get Castlevania 4 when it was new. I, I've recently played this for the first time, early 2000s, maybe. Yeah, because when one of the later stages, I remember they use uh, Beginning, which is the main theme from Castlevania 3 as the music for this. It's one of those stages where you scroll up. And when you first get there, you see this large spike wheel that's moving back and forth rapidly at the bottom of the screen. You wait too long, it starts moving up. And of course, it touches you, you're dead. And what you have to do is you have to jump on these you know, platforms, of course, and stairs to move up. However, the stairs, after you've been on one of these stairs for a second, it falls. Breaks so away. You can't take your time for the first part of the stage. And then once you finally get to the part where the you don't have to worry about the spiky thing on the bottom anymore, the next part of the stage, you've got these platforms that you have to jump on and they keep moving up uh, and diagonally. But you have to be careful because there are ceilings that have spikes in them. So, of course, if you touch those, you die. But other than that, it was really fun. I'd have to say one of the things I really enjoyed about this game was the improved play control. Because you could finally whip the, the, the fact that you can control your whip in any direction. Yep, and you know if you press the attack button and uh, you know just kept holding the button, your whip went limp, and you could swing it around to like block fireballs. And also, what was kind of cool is you could, you know, there were certain loops you could you would see in the background, and you whip one of these loops, it allow you to swing Indiana Jones style. The other couple things I really liked about it, you could crouch and move. And what really helped is the fact they put the sub-weapon on on its own button. So that way you could find, you know, you could use your weapons while while crouching as well as standing up. So all in all... You could actually jump on a staircase, too. Oh, yeah, you could jump on them all. That was... Because in the original, if you were on a staircase and something was coming at you, you're dead. Because you can only go up or down. You can't jump or you fall through the stairs somehow. They've just made so many improvements for this one that really, you know, really made the game a lot more memorable and, you know, really makes it, I think, one of the best games for the Super Nintendo. Well, that wasn't, of course, the only game released for the Super Nintendo or during the the, uh, the 16-bit era. But, well, no, that had a specific competitor at the same time, though, on Sega. The only Sega Genesis Castlevania game, Bloodlines. Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> that, that, that For some reason, I don't know how Sega finagled that but bloodlines which up to that point is arguably the most gory of all the castlevania games too. oh yeah geez that one's got some blood in it yeah and i think but, in, in that one when you die you actually burst into this cloud of chunky salsa yeah and, and, and this one gave you two different characters you could play each with even though you're going through the same levels each with different play styles 
and abilities. So when, when you'd go through the level as the Belmont, you'd be like, okay, I can't reach that, that ledge. And there's no way you can. But if you go through as the other guy, he can reach that ledge. Yep, because yeah, which, which kind of made you want to play the game twice, one with each character, and then you, you had the same thing with being able to, uh, if, if you were playing with the, the whip character, you could latch onto things and swing, and the other character could use his uh, bow staff to or his uh, lance to to jump really high, so he could jump higher than than the other person, and. I Bloodlines was a fantastic game. Now that had some killer mode seven levels. The, the few times I have played it, I have enjoyed it because yeah, this one you had uh, John Morris. You know they change a continuity that he's related to Quincy Morris from the Dracula novels, and then the other character with the spear is Eric Lacarde, who and his his lance is actually called the Alucard spear. Um, and you in Castlevania Judgment, I don't know if they mentioned this in any earlier games, but they do specifically say that Alucard did fashion the spear as a way to assist the Belmont clan in battling Dracula. Um, unfortunately, with John Morris, he does die because they establish in some of the later games that the only people who can use the, the vampire killer safely are people who possess the Belmont warlord chromosome. Doesn't that almost kind of seem like the whole midichlorians from the prequel Star Wars trilogy? It is kind of ridiculous, yeah. I'm honestly surprised that 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 they didn't port it to the Wii U or the Wii Virtual Console like they did with a lot of the other Castlevania games. Well, that's because this one was Sega. Sega may still have some weird rights issue for yeah, Bloodlines. That's possible. It is. Um, but, but, but then again, Sega is owned by Nintendo now, so. That's true. And they have ported, I know, like Sonic the Hedgehog and uh, some of the other Sega games for the the Genesis, they have actually ported to the virtual console. So that, that is interesting. I don't know why they haven't released it, because I'm sure there's enough Castlevania games out there that it will sell. But then, yeah, we... and you know, I, th- this one I remember because I, I was a Sega man. I didn't have a Super Nintendo at this point when these were new. And so I remember when my wife bought me this one. I played the hell out of it. I, I don't know if I ever beat this one because this one gets brutally. It, it, it's it, the the difficulty curve is not even. The first few levels are difficult but fun, and then all of a sudden it's like you turned on hard mode for the second half of the game. So basically, you got to man up and grow a pair to once it gets to that point, huh? Yeah, it's just like, you know, there's no subtle curve to the difficulty. It's mm-hmm. like going from easy to hard in one level. Wow. So I know also around this le- around this time period, uh, we'll get to Rondo of Blood in just a moment because that one was released. That one was originally just released in Japan. Uh, but for the Nintendo, in the, the Super Nintendo in the States, we had Castlevania Dracula X. Now, this one, I've only played on an emulator a couple times. I never actually played it when it came out. And this is where we were introduced to Richter Belmont. Now, have you played uh, Dracula X? I remember playing this one when it first came out on a, at a friend's house. He had it. And it was an enjoyable enough game. Now, at the time, we didn't know how much of a nerfed, completely cut-to-hell version of Rondo of Blood this was. Mm-hmm. It was just an all-right Castlevania game at the time. Now, after you've played Rondo of Blood, you can't play this. It's, you know, it's, it is a bad game in retrospect. 
the thing I liked about this one that it introduced to the series, well, actually Rondo of Blood introduced this to me because I played Rondo of Blood before Dracula X. When you pick up a sub-weapon, the one that, if you already have one, then the one that you did have flew a few feet behind you. And I personally like that because one of the things that was kind of a pain in the butt about the other Castlevania games, like let's say you've got the firebomb and you know, you, you accidentally whip a candle or an enemy drops a weapon and it turns out to be like the dagger or the stopwatch or something you don't want. Well, you're pretty much screwed. But I liked this new mechanic because, yeah, you, well, granted in this one, you didn't have the shot multipliers like you had in the other ones, but uh, you had the item crash, which, you know, kind of made up for that. But I did like it where, if, like I said, let's say you've got the boomerang and you accidentally pick up the dagger then you could, well, you had a few seconds to get the, the boomerang before it disappeared. Now, uh, Rondo of Blood. So we'll get to this one next. And this one, I think, was originally released for the, was it the TurboGrafx-16 CD? In Japan only. Yep. In the, the, this one never, in its original run, came out in America at all. This was a Japanese-only title. Which is a shame, because it is, it's one of my favorite of the Castlevania series, I would put it, it probably would have come out in America, except the Turbo Graphics was dying a hard, mm. hard death over here when when this would have come out. So there was no point in bringing it over. Yeah, because this one I first had a chance to play on the Virtual Console for the Nintendo Wii. I know they also uh, they made a game uh, Castlevania X Chronicles because Dracula X and and Rondo of Blood serve as the prequel to Symphony of the Night. And the uh, the one for the PlayStation Portable, it included uh, the original version, and I think you could, which you could play as either like a graphic, you know, the enhanced version that had the better graphics, and then you could also play the, I think you could unlock the original version, and then it also had an unlockable version of Symphony of the Night. Now, the thing I liked most about this one is how it had, um, you know, multiple characters you could play. Because of course you started as Richter, but then you could also Maria. you could also unlock a Maria Renard. Which now have you ever played as Maria or? No, no. Um, I've I've never played Rondo of Blood, but my son has it, so I've seen it from him. Yeah, and Maria is just more of a fun character to play because she can fly. Yeah, she's a lot faster. She double jumps. She can slide. I mean, Richter is a freaking tank compared to her. Yeah, he just he—it's—it's it's almost like a new game. It, it, because... it's, it's just yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree because one of the things in Symphony of the Night, once you've beaten it, you can go through Symphony of the Night as Richter, and no, you can't do a damn thing. Yeah, it's oh, like I said, it's just so much slower. Um, but you know, and also it's kind of fun about Maria is that she gets her own set of sub weapons. Um, like in, for example, instead of the dagger, she gets a bird. That bird thing. Yeah, and then instead of the boomerang, she gets a dragon. Instead of the axe, she gets a cat. Instead of the firebomb, she gets a turtle. And then, um, instead of well, there's a couple other ones. I know there's like, uh, this one actually introduced a new sub weapon, the the by the holy book. But Maria got like a song book, so. Well, this transitions nicely into Symphony of the Night, which we've already talked quite a bit about. 
And I'm sure if we wanted to, we could do an entire episode just on Symphony of the Night. So uh, this one popularized the Metvania or Castleroid style of gameplay. Now, I never actually played this one when it first came out. Uh, did you play it when it was originally released or did you event? Well, I think I saw you said you did play it because you had PlayStation back then. Well, no, I didn't have a PlayStation. I didn't play this till the PS2 era. I had okay. the original PlayStation game, but I played it on the PS2, so it'd be technically a couple of years later. But I played through this one multiple times. Yeah, and I, you know, th- this one—it's the first one I can think of where you're not a Belmont. This is all Alucard's game. Yeah, the and it's—I said it is a lot of fun. I mean, it's the highest-ranked Castlevania game, and I think it is well worthy of that. Uh, because it introduced a lot of things that would become commonplace in your later Castlevania games. You know, the exploration style. You know, you'll you'll be walking along a, uh, a corridor and you'll see there's a ledge that's too high for you to reach. Okay, that means I got to find something that's going to let me jump higher. You know, you'll find glowing doors or doors that are locked. Well, that means I got to find a key. And, you know, of course, there are hidden rooms as well. So... That plus, and, and and technically, you're not so. I mean, obviously, they built this into the game, but you're not supposed to be able to leave the castle. But if you do some things in a certain way, you can hit a glitch that lets you get outside the castle walls and do something. Yeah, I've heard about that, and I know there's because there's like a way you can get like two hundred some percent exploration. Two hundred and four percent. Two hundred four. Yes. For me, one of the things I I love about this game so much, other than the fact that it's just a lot of fun to play, I really love the music. And I'd have to say of all the video games I've played, this is probably my favorite soundtrack. I'm not as much for the soundtrack in the second part of the game, but when you're in the first part of the game, it has some really good Castlevania tunes. I, I, I agree. I actually used the remix of Bloody Tears on my old Channel 32 Halloween special cool. that I did once. I actually ended out on that when I was freaking out. So, of course, there have been a couple different versions of Symphony of the Night. Um, the version I have is on is for the Xbox 360, and it's on what's called the Konami Classics Collection. Or, I'm sorry, I think it's called the Konami Arcade Collection, which, of course, is misnamed because Castlevania Symphony of the Night never came out for the arcade, but it included two extra games, Frogger and Super Contra. And I know there was also a version that was released for, I believe it was a Sega Saturn. And I'm kind of sad that we didn't get this one because uh, it had a couple different areas that weren't in the normal version. But this one, I believe you could actually play as Maria. And instead of having to limit yourself to either Alucard or eventually Richter. So I think that one would have been a lot of fun to play. I have oft been a, a critic of polygons. I don't like them. Sprites look better. But I will agree. We're getting into a we're getting into about 1994 or so here, and Symphony of the Night is done with sprites. Actually, I think like well, 96 or 97. Okay, maybe it's it is that yeah, late. We're a little later. The, N, the N60 the N, the N64 said, "No, man, polygons are the future, man. No, no, it's got to be 3D, man." First of all, I can't think of a single 2D video game franchise that ever successfully made the leap to to 3D. Contra, Mortal Kombat, Castlevania, they all even Mario, garbage once they go to 3D. But 
they decided it's got to be 3D if it's on the N64. Got to be. Got to be. They yeah. are they are easily the worst Castlevania games ever made. Yeah, the N64 games. They are so terrible. First of all, they look like garbage. The polygons are hor- These things look worse than a virtual fighter game. They play like crap. They are sluggish as hell. These games are horrible. You know, I've never played N64 or... Yeah, I'm sorry. I've never played Castlevania 64 or uh, Legacy of Darkness, but those are the uh, those are the one that's those are the main complaints I've heard about it is that just terrible play control. And I do have to agree with you that most of the games that were in two dimensions, they didn't translate well to third to three dimensions. There's a few. I mean, I personally I think that some of the 3D Mario games are okay, but like I really liked uh, Mario sixty four, but that's a that's a topic God, for another day. Um, if you ever attempted to play one of the three D Mortal Kombat games from the PlayStation or PlayStation two era, they're I, unplayable if you're used to the old style. Yeah, and I I haven't, but I can certainly see because just what I remember of the play control from Mortal Kombat, I just can't see it that style working in. 3D dimension. I it's one of those series that maybe in a way for me it's like Castlevania where it feels more natural in a 2D environment. Just like with Legend of Zelda, it's one of those series where I've played a little bit of the 3D Zeldas, um, Majora's Mask, Ocarina of Time, and uh, Wind Waker. But for some reason, Zelda just doesn't work for me at that. I've always preferred Zelda as a top-down perspective, but I don't know. Although, although I will say Legend of Zelda 2 was actually really fun, too. Yeah, that was a good game, too. And, 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 and that mm-hmm. one kind of half-side-scroller, half-top-down. Yeah, the only other game from around this era uh, to talk... Actually, there's a couple more, because I uh, there was... Around this time, there was also Castlevania Legends, which was a Game Boy one. This one was interesting because it introduced a female Belmont as the lead character. I don't remember her name. Uh, I think this one, it was a little different in that when you got the sub-weapons, you actually kept an inventory of them, kind of like in Castlevania 2. But I've only played that game a couple times, so I don't remember a lot of it. There's one other game we'll talk about from this era before we go to the portables. Castlevania Chronicles, which I believe you've, you've played. Uh, yes, it's it, it goes back to my complaint about like Haunted Castle and that, and like uh, Castlevania Four. You're too damn big. It's too you're you're clunky. It's slow. It's it's essentially an upgraded graphic graphical version of the arcade game, and it just doesn't work for me. It just didn't work for me. Um, from what I've read about the game, it. It wasn't very well received for the same reason that you mentioned the again the whole you know slow clunky controls and in some ways it felt kind of like a step back. Castlevania Chronicles that was at like what late nineties or early two thousands maybe. Okay, because um, was... it was for the PlayStation One, so I'm gonna wager that PS Two either wasn't out or wasn't big yet at that point. Other game I remember from this time around this time, the Legacy of Darkness, uh, which was for, I believe, I think it was just the Xbox. I never, uh, I don't think it was ever released for the PlayStation. I haven't played this one. This one actually took place, 
Well, no, the Legacy of Darkness is the N sixty one of the N sixty four titles. Oh, you're right. Are, are you thinking was, of Lamont of Innocence? No, um, Curse of Darkness, which actually, yeah, you're right. Legacy of Darkness was N sixty four. I was thinking Curse of Darkness. So, Castlevania uh, has actually made some very interesting games for the uh, the the portable realm. You know, we already talked about PlayStation. I'm sorry, not PlayStation. PlayStation Portable. Uh, where we had the Castlevania Chron X Chronicles. There have also been some for the Game Boy. But when we start to move to the Game Boy Advance and the DS, this is where I think that they've actually done some experimentation, which personally I think really kind of helped the series and move the story along. Now for the Circle of Yeah, Circle Circle of the Moon was a good one in that regard. Is it felt like a Metroidvania game? And it actually, for a handheld, had a lot of long gameplay life. Oh, yeah. Because it was not a short game. And it, it required something that maybe they've done this since. I, I haven't played a lot of the newer ones. But it had the card toggle system. Yep. Where you, you'd get these different cards. So some would be a top level, some would be a bottom level. And then you'd have a different sub-weapon depending on how you coordinated the cards like if you had a cockatrice and a rose it would do it would make this but if you had a cockatrice and lavender it would do this and so you had about the potential of like 40 different sub-weapons yeah because it was the the dual setup system where the first row of cards was one of the roman gods and then the second one was a mythological creature like, I remember one of them, uh, Ares, or no, Mars, if you equipped the Mars, it gave you a sword instead of the whip. And then, depending on what monster you equipped, that would give a different power. Like, the one I can remember off the top of my head, uh, if you equipped the Salamander, which was, of course, a fire creature, it gave you a fire sword. But, yeah, certainly... I, I like... I, I Again, maybe this is cheap. I don't remember what the combination was. It was Salamander and something. And you got those rotating fireballs. <laughs> and if you were a high enough level that you would automatically replenish your magic faster than the fireballs would drain it, you could just cool. use those to wipe out. I mean, I don't, you could go through whole levels without using your whip once, just angling the fireballs where you wanted them. I don't know if that was cheap of me to do that, but I did beat the game using hey, that trick, if you will. The programmers put it in there. It's not cheating. It's it's wisely using your skills. Yeah, that's it. Also, for the Game Boy Advance, we had a Harmony of Dissonance. And this one, uh, it is available for the Wii U. It's okay. Uh, you take the role of Juiced Belmont, which I think is the grandson of Simon Belmont. This is the one where the backtracking really is a pain in the butt. And there are some areas where I don't think it really gives you enough clues as to what you're supposed to do. So I remember in order to get through the game, I had to actually look up stuff on the internet, which I normally don't like doing. Um, one of the things I did like about this game and some of the other portable ones, oh, actually they did this, of course, with Symphony of the Night, where you know once you beat the game, you could enter another character's name and play as a different character. In uh, Harmony of Dissonance, if you beat the game, you could... Well, one of the characters you meet is Maxim, who is uh, one of Juiced's friends. So if you beat the game as Juiced, you can play as Maxim, which he uses a sword instead of a whip. He's a lot faster than Juiced is. However, he can't take as much damage. He doesn't get to use sub-weapons. Uh, he only has one sub-weapon, actually. He doesn't get an inventory. 
but so it really makes it a lot different game. Now, of the three ones for the Game Boy Advance, I'd have to say the best is Area of Sorrow. Now, are you familiar with this one at all? Or I think I rented this one, so I probably played it for a week. So I, and I don't think I ever really got into this one because I didn't have it long enough. Yeah, and as I said, the portable ones try to introduce new things. In the case of Lament of Innocence, I'm sorry, not Lament of Innocence. Uh, Aria of Sorrow. Yep, Aria of Sorrow. Uh, not Aria of Sorrow. Uh, uh, Harmony of Dissonance. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. You had what was called Spell Fusion. And you got your sub-weapons, but as you traveled through the castle, you could find spell books. And if you wanted to, you could combine a spell book with a weapon, like, uh, you know, if you did the, if you had the boomerang and you equipped the fire book, that would produce a different effect than, you know, if you equipped the ice book, for example. Uh, now, in the case of Area of Sorrow and its sequel, Dawn of Sorrow, this one you had a new character, not a Belmont. Uh, his name is Soma Cruz. The first one takes place in 2035. Soma, his special thing is he gains an ability called Dominance. As you're defeating enemies, sometimes you'll claim that enemy's soul. You have what's called the Tactical Soul System. So this gives, of course, this gives you different powers, like some of them, like, for example, the Skeleton Soul. If you have that, you have a bone that you throw. Uh, some of them are more passive abilities, like that will increase your strength or your luck or whatnot. And then there's others that are, of course, needed to traverse uh, the castle and get to different areas like, you know, turning into a bat or double jumping. Um, so I thought that was a lot of fun. And in Dawn of Sorrow, they actually introduced a new mechanic because this one was for the DS. So you had the touch screen. Uh, when you came to a boss and you were about to beat the boss, there was a seal that appeared on the screen and you had to trace a certain one of your, your runes or glyphs. If you didn't do it, then that means you had to keep fighting the boss. So in order to actually beat the boss, you had to be kind of quick on the draw where, you know, you had to have the stylus for the DS in one hand while playing. And then, again, once you beat the boss, quickly pull out the stylus, you know, you know, do your symbol, and then you can finally beat the, the boss. So that one was a bit more challenging. You said, it sounds like you haven't really played much of the other portables, but there's one you mentioned that you've played that I haven't. Uh, Lament of Innocence. Yeah, for the for the PS2. This one, it was a step in the right direction for trying to make the 3D work, but at the same time, there was still, I don't know if it was technical limitations or just, you know, time limitations. You had a locked camera. So you had, like, the like the problem with Resident Evil where the, the game chooses your camera angle for you, which is really, really irritating. But you, but it was 3D, and you could go up and down as well as uh, left and right. You had the diff you had different weapons. You had a fire whip and an ice whip, and then certain levels, you know, you needed the fire whip to melt an ice door or whatnot. And the most annoying stuff is where you'd get the fire weapon on, say, level, you know, on the fourth level. And then you would have to use that weapon to go back and redo level two <laughs> to open the ice door, which would open level six. And it was kind of like, okay, this is needlessly convoluted. The thing that I found was interesting, though, just from my read about it, is this one actually is established as the first of the original Castlevania timeline because it's established that this is where Dracula becomes Dracula and Leon uh, Belmont. I think they actually explained the origins of the vampire killer whip in this one. 
it's been a long while since I played it, so they, they might. I just don't remember. Yeah. Now, there were a couple uh, others that came after this, which I believe neither one of us have played. Curse of Darkness was for the Xbox. Uh, this one introduced a character, Hector, I believe. And this one took place around the time, or just a little bit after Castlevania Three, because from what I was reading, uh, you could unlock Trevor Belmont as a player character. There's a couple that were made for the DS that I haven't played, Portrait of Ruin and Order of Ecclesia. Nope. Play, okay, because Portrait of Ruin, that one you're actually a character, Jonathan Morris, the son of John Morris from Bloodlines. And then uh, the other one, uh, Order of Ecclesia, this one you actually introduce a new character, Shinoa. And I guess I haven't played the actual game, so I'm not sure uh, exactly what her powers are. But I know she did appear in the game Castlevania Judgment. Does this one ring a bell, or have you played this one? Or I haven't played. Uh, after Lamont of Innocence, the, la the next one that I played would be that demo we talked about for the okay. online one. And, and, and th that's it. Castlevania Judgment tried to move in a new direction. This one was a 3D fighting game. The notable thing about this one is the character designs were by the same guy who does the Death Note anime. I've heard of some people complain about uh, the designs and that they felt that some of the characters were ruined. Personally, I didn't have too much of a problem. The only ones that I felt were really ruined were Simon Belmont and Death. And again, you can go do it and search on the internet if you want to see them. Simon Belmont just looks too modern, I think. But Death just looks more comical than anything else because he's like all skinny and he's got these skinny peg legs and these little skinny bone-like wings. So yeah, he looks more comical than scary. Judgment was okay. I liked it. It didn't really get as strong reviews as some of the other games, but it had an awesome soundtrack. I will say that its soundtrack is neck and neck with Symphony of the Night as one of my favorite Castlevania soundtracks. Well, I, I wonder if with Castlevania's enduring legacy, whether that's good or bad. Uh, back in the early two thousands, Paul Anderson, Paul W. S. Anderson, was trying to make a live action Castlevania movie. Oh, I heard. And about you know, that. after yeah. seeing what he's done to the Resident Evils and that, that he'd end up finding some way to screw it up. But I wonder, since Castlevania is known for its very strong soundtracks. If you would have screwed that aspect up too, I don't know. I mean, at, at least was it who's the one that makes that has a reputation for making bad video game movies? Uh, Uwe Boll. First of all, I like Uwe Boll, but <laughs> yeah, he, his video game movies are some of his weaker movies. Once yeah. he stopped doing those, he got a lot better. But but yeah, no, this was actually big studio. They were like hundred million dollar budget. They wanted to make this, and for whatever reason, it didn't happen. But it actually already kind of did. Oh, Go so. watch the movie Vampire Hunter D Blood. I think it's Bloodlust. Okay. It's the second Vampire yeah, the Hunter second D one. film. It's essentially a Castlevania movie. Yeah, it's, I... e it's even got boss fights and sub bosses. <laughs> it's essentially a Castlevania movie or an animated one. It really is. I, I've seen the first Vampire Hunter D and I love it. I just haven't had a chance. The sequel's to see. actually better. That, this oh, cool. is one of those rare cases where the second one I like a lot more than the first one. Yeah. Now, 
I know they also did even venture into puzzle uh, games because one of the games I have for my iPhone is called Castlevania Puzzle Encore of the Night. It's essentially a retelling or abbreviated version of Symphony of the Night. Um, you just explore the first castle, though. They don't have you go through the second castle. It's essentially a puzzle fighting game where it's like Bejeweled, where you have to match three colored blocks, and then it you know adds those blocks to your opponent's board. I liked it. It was a lot of fun. Castlevania The Adventure Rebirth. Well, it's not really a remake of Castlevania Adventure. It uses the same character, Christopher Belmont. It's not bad. It's only available, I believe, for the Wii Virtual Console. And it's it's rec I recommend it if you have a chance to pick it up. The thing I like about it is it has multiple routes through each stage. Uh, there are times where you'll find a key. And, you know, if you keep that key instead of a sub-weapon and get to a locked door, it'll let you go through a different route through the castle. So that was an interesting game. I said not... It's not really, it's not exceptionally good. It doesn't, other than the whole multiple routes, it doesn't really do anything new for the series. Then, of course, there was Harmony of Despair, which we've mentioned. And like I said, I personally have no intentions to get it. I think that it relies a little too much on the whole downloadable content. Yeah, it, it's, too, it's built too much around, look at us, we're an online game, an online Castlevania game. And it's like, yeah, it doesn't work so hot. Yeah. And, you know? And you also mentioned before, like, yeah, you pause the game and you can still get attacked. So it's like... Which is just crap because I, I, I get it. You're supposed to be playing online, but real life's going to happen too. Someone's yeah. going to come to the door. The cat's going to start puking or something. You need to be able to to pause the damn thing. And th that's what I, I didn't like. And mm -hmm. I also didn't like just the time limit. I don't like that constant time limit ticking down on me. It's like, no, let me play the game at my damn pace. Yeah, and you know, and sometimes, yeah, yeah, sometimes nature calls and you gotta go to the bathroom, and some of us don't like peeing in soda cans. Well, they did try to reboot the Castlevania series with three games called the Lords of Shadow trilogy. There was the first Lords of Shadow. This one, now I haven't played any of these, but I have watched the videos of them online, and they do actually do like they look like they tell a pretty good story. And um, spoiler alert: uh, Lords of Shadow actually has, I think, one of the best endings of any Castlevania game I've seen, and it's got a very interesting plot twist. This one, you take the role of Gabriel Belmont, and at the end of the game, you find Gabriel has become Dracula, and he's just kind of you know sitting in this darkened room that's in the back of some church. He encounters Zobek, another Zobek's another character you meet in this game. Uh, basically what he does is he throws you out a window of the church and as you crash out the window you find that you're actually in the modern era. So I found that was a I thought that was a really interesting twist ending. Mirror of Fate is this that one was released for I know the Nintendo DS and I think they've also made it versions of it for like the 360 and the the PS3, I believe. This one, again, it takes place in the same timeline. Simon and Trevor and Alucard are, are also in this. Now, I'm not sure how you would feel about this. They make Trevor Simon's father, where in the original one, I think Trevor was like Simon's great-great-grandfather. Trevor actually becomes Alucard. I don't know, you Dracula's think that's... son? Yeah, basically uh, what happens is... Trevor 
he goes to defeat Gabriel, who's his father. While he's fighting him, you know, he never tells Dra uh, Dracula his name. Well, Dracula kills Trevor, and as he's dying, that's when he reveals to him that, you know, he's his son. What uh, Dracula does is he uses his blood to try to, to heal him, but, you know, it doesn't work. So he puts him in a coffin and he names him Alucard because he never, you know, knew his, uh, his name. And then, you know, the game ends with, I, I don't remember if you play Simon's part first or Alucard's part first, but the game ends, of course, with Simon and Alucard working together to defeat Dracula. And then Lords of Shadow 2 ties it up. So it's an interesting series. I think some of the concepts, the main problem I've heard with them is some people accuse uh, Lords of Shadow and Lords of Shadow 2 are being God of War clones because it's got kind of that same gameplay Gen, mechanic yeah. and same perspective, but they look like interesting games. And I, I might give them a try someday. If... I, I'm just kind of, you know, to me, the Castlevania series is very much an 80s and 90s thing yeah. as far as I'm concerned. After the 90s, I just, I, I've, I've tried a couple and they haven't worked for me. I know some people, they have a hard time moving past the Symphony of the Night. It's like that was the peak of the series for them, which, you know, kind isn't, of was. Yeah, and, and it's not, that's not a bad opinion to have because Symphony of the Night is a really darn good game. I'm not a mad or upset with the direction the series has taken. Uh, as I said before, I do like some of the portable ones, how they've introduced non-Belmont characters and they've tried to introduce new game mechanics and new power-ups like you know we talked about circle of the moon and the dynamic setup system in the area on dawn of sorrow you know you have the tactical soul system and which like i said i thought were a lot of fun and worked rather well well josh yeah, I, I just it, it it seems like they're they're trying way too hard to try and keep the series relevant when let's face it it's not really that relevant anymore outside of the, you know, a, a Metroidvania style. Yeah. I mean, th th there's a reason that that online one took a 16-bit style because yeah. that's what everyone remembered it for, you know? Mm -hmm. I haven't heard anything about Lords of Shadow and if they're going to do anything else with that series. The one thing I have there that's interesting, it's related to Castlevania, but it's not a Castlevania game. The man who did, who was responsible for Symphony of the Night and a few of the other games, uh, he, his name I think is Iga. He's actually working on a new project called Bloodstained, uh, Ritual of the Night, which is going to be a very similar to Symphony of the Night in terms of its look and its feel. And I know that there's, they did a Kickstarter project, which raised like, I think like $5 million or somewhere around there. Jeez. So yeah, it, sh it should be interesting to see how that turns out. Dracula's undead, and Castlevania games deal with a lot of dead creatures, and I, do you think we've talked this series to death for now? Al, you now possesses Dracula's heart. <laughs> yep, and hopefully the listeners now, now possesses more knowledge of the Castlevania series than they could ever hope to have. And I know we've, of course, just scratched the surface because, you know, as we both mentioned, there are games in there that neither of us have played. And I'm sure we could do an entire episode alone just on Symphony of the Night. But I think we're going to call it quits for today as we've talked quite a bit. So before we go, Josh, if people want to hear more of your wit and wisdom, where can they find you? 1201beyond.com is my site where all of my shows and writings and various nonsense are collected. 
So if they want to hunt you down like the Belmonts hunt Dracula, 1201beyond.com. Or, or my Facebook page, that too. Yep. And I understand you also started writing a column for, was it Fangoria or? Yep. I have a column in Fangoria called VHS, about movies that you can only find on VHS. Well, that's cool, because I'm sure that there's a lot of really good movies that, for some reason, never saw a DVD release, and if you want to find them, you can only find them on VHS. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a, there's a whole lot of things that, that, that I, I put into the analog crypt. That's cool. And so, yeah, certainly check out Josh's website. Uh, he does have some good internet radio shows that I really enjoy listening to, so uh, certainly check out Lost in the Static and also What the F***. Which is Radio Drome. Yep. Uh, radio Drome is one that I actually started listening to. And that one I've really enjoyed. Um, that one you talk mostly about like movies and TV shows. It, it, yeah, it's mostly cult cinema. Okay. Well, thanks again for joining up. us and hopefully it's not a horrible night to have a curse wherever you are so have a good evening or morning or afternoon whatever it is wherever you are and happy gaming